morning from Hong Kong. The time's 8.03 on Tuesday, the 1st of November. That means it's money talk time here on Radio 3. This is Peter Lewis, and I have the latest business and finance headlines for you. Hong Kong's economy has recorded the worst contraction since the second quarter of 2020. GDP fell for a third consecutive quarter, shrinking 4.5% year-on-year in the July to September period. That was far weaker than economists' forecasts for an 0.8% decline and worse than the second quarter's 1.3% fall. Investment plunged more than 14% in the third quarter. The CEOs of some of the world's leading banks, including Goldman Sachs, HSBC, Standard Chartered and UBS, have gathered in Hong Kong to attend the Global Financial Leaders Investment Summit, which starts today and continues through Thursday. The deputy CEO of the HKMA, Daryl Chan, said the summit is a sign to the rest of the world that Hong Kong is reconnecting and reopening. Hong Kong's regulators are looking into legalising retail trading of cryptocurrency assets and permitting the listing of crypto exchange-traded funds. Financial Secretary Paul Chan said that it's Hong Kong's top priority to digitalise its financial system. He pledged to help enterprises, especially small and medium-sized companies, to gain access to the financial services they need. And China's factory and services activity both fell into contraction in October as coronavirus curbs weighed on the economy. The manufacturing PMI came in at 49.2, down from September's 50.1, and that was the lowest reading since July. The non-manufacturing PMI, a key gauge of activity in China's services and construction sectors, fell for the first time since May to 48.7 points in October. That's a sharp decline from 50.6 seen in September. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by James Wong at Leeds Securities and Hong Kong-based independent economist Connie Bolland. With a view from Japan is John Byrne at the Asian Development Bank Institute. Money Talk on On Wall Street overnight, U.S. stocks closed lower ahead of the Federal Reserve's two-day monetary policy meeting, which starts later today. But they posted a monthly gain in October for the first time in three months, despite a collapse in mega-cap tech stocks. The S&P 500 shed three-quarters of a percent to finish at 3,872. For the month of October, the index was up 8%. The Dow was the big outperformer last month, surging 14% in its best month since 1976. On Monday, though, it fell 129 points, or 0.4%, to settle at 32,733. The Nasdaq Composite was held back by tech stocks, ending with a monthly gain of 3.9%. On Monday, it tumbled 1% to 10,988. Financial and industrial stocks led the gains in October, but a mixed third quarter earnings season has shown slowing growth and major disappointments from large tech companies. Alphabet, Amazon, Meta and Microsoft combined lost over 350 billion US dollars in market value just last week. In Europe, the stock 600 index rose 0.4% yesterday and was up 6.3% for the month. The UK's FTSE 100 gained almost 3% in October. In another volatile session in Hong Kong, stocks closed lower. 
capping the worst month since the global financial crisis. The Hang Seng Index fell 176 points, or 1.2%, to 14,687, giving up gains of 1.7% at the high of the day. For the month of October, the benchmark index has plunged 14.4%. That's the most in 14 years. The Hang Seng China Enterprises Index slumped 1.8%, extending last week's losses of almost 9%, which was the first worst ever five-day loss following any party congress since the gauge's inception in 1994. For the month, the index of mainland Chinese companies listed in the city retreated 16.5%. The city's tech index rebounded 1.1% yesterday, but it was up a greater 3.5% earlier in the session. It tumbled 17.3% in October. And on the mainland, the Shanghai Composite Index slipped 0.8% to 2,893, taking its losses for the month to 4.3%. The share price of property developer Longfor Group plummeted as much as 45% in Hong Kong at one stage to the lowest level since 2011 before closing almost 24% lower after the group's founder, Wu Yaojun, resigned as an executive director and the chairperson of the board. Mrs Wu's resignation underscored investor concern about the health of the company and the record daily plunge in Longfor shares dragged down the rest of the property sector. The Hang Seng Mainland Properties Index slumped 6.5%. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil settled at $94.83 a barrel for a monthly gain of 7.8%. Copper was almost unchanged on the month. Gold suffered its seventh consecutive monthly loss, declining 1.6% to $1,633 an ounce. Treasury yields are up for the third straight month. The US 10-year Treasury bond yield jumped 21 basis points in October to 4.04%, but ended off its highs of the month. And the US dollar was slightly lower over the month, but saw some big swings in between. The euro this morning is at 99 cents. The buck's 2.8% stronger against the Japanese yen for the month at 148.72. Sterling weakened 2.8% in October to $1.14.5 and 9 Hong Kong dollars and 2 cents. And yesterday, the onshore yuan weakened 0.7% against the US dollar to 7.3015. For the month of October, the yuan declined 2.6%, that's the eighth consecutive monthly decline. And Bitcoin climbed 5% over the month to $20,500. And if we take a look around Asia-Pacific stock markets this morning, the SX200 in Australia is flat right now. Uh, the Nikkei 225 is up just very slightly, 0.1%. The Cosby has gained about half a percent. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to add about 30 points at the open. It's Tuesday. That means we welcome James Wong, Chief Executive Officer and Managing Director at Leeds Securities. Morning, James. Good morning, Peter. And also joining us, the first time for quite a while, Connie Bolland, Hong Kong-based independent strategist. Welcome back, Connie. Good morning, Peter. Nice to be here. 
Let's start with these dreadful um, GDP figures out, out of Hong Kong, the worst contraction now since the second quarter of 2020. GDP contracted for the third consecutive quarter, shrank 4.5% year on year in the July to September period, far weaker than economists' forecasts for a 0.8% decline and worse than the second quarter's 1.3% fall. Investment plunged more than 14% uh, in the third quarter. The government said weak external demand was to blame. A spokesman said the worsened external environment and continued disruptions to cross-boundary cross land cargo flows dealt a serious blow to Hong Kong's exports. And Financial Secretary Paul Chan has warned uh, that the government will inevitably see, uh, the country will, uh, the, the city will inevitably, inevitably see an annual economic contraction for 2024. Uh, 2022 and it's revised down its official forecast for GDP to a range of between minus 0.5% and plus 0.5%. James and Connie, what on earth has gone wrong? What's behind this contraction? Uh, well, I think the investment drop is one significant contributor and the other one is the good exports have declined significantly by almost 16%. A uh, couple of factors here, I think. Um, we have two rounds of U.S. interest rate uh, increase, which is significantly hurting the uh, financial market and the local property market. Uh, and uh, the effect will be seen um, you know, more, more in the next few quarters. Uh, but there is also an interesting point here where... Uh, the goods exports are affected, despite the fact that China exports is doing quite well, almost up ten percent uh, in that quarter. And I think a lot of the goods traders are, t um, are telling the story of uh, the cross-boundary uh, cargo flow problem, and also because some of the um, people who are importing goods from China uh, are directly now uh, getting the goods there uh, and bypassing Hong Kong's ports and re-exports venue because of the difficulty of getting through uh, the, the borders and at uh, the boundaries. So that is an interesting uh, kind of uh, uh, development that hasn't been seen before. And of course, uh, some of the manufacturers are pretty worried uh, and, the, and the traders are pretty worried that, that this might become a trend and re-exports will not come through Hong Kong. James, I probably would add to that list. We've also got uh, a lot of unexpected pressure on the property sector as well, haven't we? That's presumably also adding uh, to the decline. Oh, yes. Uh, if we look at the Hansen Index at its entirety, we can see the uh, price-to-book ratio is dropped to about point, 0 0.6. It's a record low. Yeah, it's a record low. It's a tad higher than that of the uh, Pakistani stock index, but no one else. So <laughs> That's not really a good comparison, <laughs> yeah, Considering how liquid Hong Kong is. And, uh, and uh, if you were looking at the real estate sector in Hong Kong, the price-to-book value uh, rarely exists is 0.5 and it's always been this way for the past decade especially in the five five uh, past five to seven years but the thing is if we were to find a way to justify or to rationalize this low price to book value we we were probably looking at a lower uh, even lower uh, asset asset price which mm -hmm. means the uh, property price is probably going to go a lot lower than what we or what we've already observed this year
Now, the government says this is due to a collapse in external demand. Now, I have no doubt that that is a consideration, but that can't possibly be the only reason, can it? It can't just be external forces. This is Hong Kong's third recession now in four years. The US, the EU, Japan, mainland are not uh, in recession. This has also got to be caused by some of our own policies, hasn't it? This must be a homegrown recession. Yeah, I think there is some uh, domestic demand issues, not so much a consumption. Consumption stays flat because we do have some consumption vouchers uh, being distributed. The main thing is um, some of these uh, very restrictive measures. Uh, in, in the third quarter, we still have the uh, seven days or three day qu- hotel quarantine for people come visiting Hong Kong or residents mm. living here returning to the city. Um, it's only recently that we have the zero plus three, uh, and uh, and hope, but there's still a lot of restrictions on uh, on the uh, entry and uh, in the, in the terms of a lot of tests uh, requirements, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it can be quite inconvenient even if you are you know uh, tested negative all the time uh, from the COVID uh, infec- infections. So I think the service exports have actually seriously been affected. Tourists can't, don't really come in. You see Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia, Vietnam, they all have been open. And Southeast Asia is actually booming. Mm-hmm. Vietnam is mm-hmm. seeing a growth rate of four, yeah. 14.7%, the highest in the region. So this is why I say this is not an external issue only. There's something wrong here, isn't there? With In, in Hong Kong, there's something fundamentally going wrong. Can I make a... Um, Add to your list, Connie, what about the talent exodus that we've seen over the last two years? I mean, at the end of the day, an economy, uh, its economic growth is really the sum of the output of all the people that make it up. So if you lose a lot of people and also you lose some of the most talented people, that's going to damage your economy, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, our chief executive has admitted that there are a lot of people leaving uh, who have left in the last couple of years. And a lot of them are younger people and probably more educated ones. You know, you know, we have four universities get get into the top hundred universities in the world. So mm. there are a lot of people who are very talented, but there are also sort of younger uh, students or younger families who have left. And you know that that also affect the local property market because you're t- talking about uh, thirty thousand. Uh, less uh, uh, properties needed <laughs> mm. and when they leave they also uh, tend to sell their, their own homes because they need the money mm. uh, in order to settle el- elsewhere or pay for the education fees and everything else so sure. so no uh, apart from the high interest rates i mean higher interest rates because we have to pack we have to follow the u.s trend uh, of uh, rising interest rates we are also having a decrease in households number Mm. which is also affecting the top of the market. James, do you see calls for optimism optimism in the fourth quarter? Do you think things can bounce back? Uh, Not not really. I don't really see a lot of uh, (laughs) uh, policy uh, improvements uh, in the way, Uh, coming our way. But the the finance secretary, Paul Chen, announced that Hong Kong is going to be a new uh, virtual asset hub. This is... uh, uh, almost surprisingly good because I have known so many people, talented people working in the virtual asset industry and they were worried about the ambiguity in the uh, uh, law uh, governing the virtual asset trading activities here in Hong now, Kong. Now we're, we're going at a different way from 
places like Singapore, for example, and mm-hmm. even the mainland, yeah. which have clamped down quite considerably on retail trading exactly. of crypto assets. They think uh, that this is dangerous, uh, that retail investors could lose a lot of money. Why are we going in a different direction? Is it possible to have, in, you know, because ultimately regulations around the world converge, don't they? You have similar regulations. Is it possible for us to be different uh, from what other people are doing? From a regulatory yeah, perspective, yeah, that's that's uh, why we were thinking that this uh, announcement is a little bit too good to be true. It's just too good. Yeah, it's uh, retail crypto, uh, retail crypto trading uh, probably needs a lot more uh, monitoring or regulation than what we have already in place. And mm. uh, the, the platform risks is basically no one in the uh, crypto trading business can avoid. So if we were to uh, promote retail trading in crypto, uh, then that means a lot more work for the SFC or for the HKMA. And uh, as far as I know, the uh, SFC is probably shorthanded at this point. So I don't, I don't really know how the regulation, uh, uh, re- regulation uh, is going to be, be uh, enforced or be uh, manufactured in in terms of monitoring how the crypto trading activity is, is going on. Because so far in Hong Kong, we have probably one company uh, that is uh, authorized by the SFC to trade crypto assets for in uh, for. Uh, institutional investors. We have mm-hmm. about a handful of uh, asset management firms that are allowed to be uplisted to trade uh, crypto assets to uh, to about 100% of their uh, asset owner management. Mm-hmm. But apart from that, we don't really have a lot more than anywhere else in the world. Connie, let me get your thoughts on what growth is going to look like in Hong Kong for the full year. The government's revised down the growth to between minus half a percent to plus half a percent. That's looking to me wildly optimistic. Now, I'm hearing economists now revise down uh, their their full-year growth scenario for Hong Kong to minus three to maybe even as much as minus four percent. But what do you think? Yeah, I think it is... uh fairly sort of uh, optimistic to, for that kind of uh, forecast That's, unless you have a miraculous turnaround in the fourth quarter I mean mm. in the first three quarters you saw negative 3.9% negative 1.3% and then now negative 4.5% even if you have a 5% growth you can't get a turnaround that quickly so I, I, I'm looking at about negative 2 to 2.5% at the moment mm. uh, but you know of course if uh, there is a massive change in the policy but James also said that he doesn't expect anything from the yeah. manager. <laughs> no, <really. laughs> I mean, miracles may occur, but uh, I, I think um, unless really there's a big turn in, uh, big, big change in the policy in terms of um, zero plus three or uh, other, other sort of arrangement to help the goods and the mm. investment. Uh, we can't see much of an improvement. And, and, and don't forget that inf- uh, interest rates are still on the rise here. Mm. James, let me get your thoughts on the market. The real standout uh, for October has been the massive divergence between US stocks and Hong Kong stocks. Yes. The S&P 500 up 8%. The Dow even more than that, up 14%. By contrast, the Hang Seng down almost 15%. The H-share index down 16.5%. How it's very, very rare to see that sort of divergence, isn't it? 
particularly uh, when you've got this strong global trend, uh, you know, starting in the U.S. How, how do you explain this? Yeah, the, the U.S. market has uh, seen some uh, strong seasonality uh, going into the second half of October. And uh, even if in a bear market, in, usually in October, the, the stock indexes tends to bounce. Uh, but what yeah. separates from... Uh, the bear market bounce to uh, with the rest of the bounce in bull market or average bounce is that in bear mar- in a bear market uh, the uh, stock indices indexes in in, in the states is probably going to peak in early November and then dive again. Uh, so we uh, we were seeing this coming for the U.S. equities to just not. Uh, that fast. I think the uh, the pace and the speed that the U.S. indices has been bouncing is because of the uh, very limited liquidity in the mm-hmm. in the stocks market. And in Hong Kong, yeah, we were uh, really getting tired to find a bottom. So it were it, it was before it was uh, if we were looking at structural bear market in Hong Kong, it's probably about going to be about sixteen thousand one hundred. It's going to be the max drawdown for a year. Mm-hmm. So then that was breached, and then it's probably fifteen thousand. Somebody would say. So then that <laughs> so was breached. So Can then, you believe we're saying fourteen thousand? Right now, Hang saying who could believe that? Yes. Yeah, so so um, I think I think uh, JP or MS is looking at. Twelve thousand two hundred. Uh, oh it's probably in, in its bearish case, in yeah. its most bearish case, yeah, yeah, and that is a, a more than sixty percent drop from the peak. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I really don't know what it, what to say about Hong Kong's market, but I, but I, but what I do know is that. Uh, global macro funds and uh, long only funds has been actively selling mm-hmm. through the most part of last week. Uh, not, not exactly sure about this week because we've seen uh, real estate, China real estate sector has been the one being, uh, being clubbed like a baby seal. And but that's a worry as well, isn't it? We're now seeing the founders of these companies, as we've just seen with Longfor yesterday, basically bailing out of their own companies. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's a, a weird thing because Longfor announced, uh, made three announcements announcements in a single night. First two announcing the departure of their executive director, the third announcing that everything is going to be fine and they're on the right course. I think <laughs> the third that really spooked investors in this uh, in this environment, especially it's, it's Halloween. And uh, I, I, just, I just don't think a 44% job in a single day uh, is is right. I think I think it's still okay. a little more overreaction over there. Okay. Well, thank you both for your scary Halloween stories about <laughs> Hong Kong. We'll talk again very soon. You heard there, James Wong, Chief Investment Officer and Managing Director at Lead Securities, and Carly Bolland, Hong Kong-based independent strategist. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio Three. Twenty-five On the phone from Tokyo is John Byrne, Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. Morning, John. Good morning, Peter. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Now, at the end of last week, the Bank of Japan, as expected, left interest rates on hold, stuck with its ultra-loose monetary policy, despite most other central banks around the world aggressively uh, raising rates. And we also heard uh, a new round of stimulus from Prime Minister uh, Kashida as well to try and help households and businesses suffering from uh, higher energy prices. Do we need, uh, or does Japan still need, all of this monetary and fiscal stimulus? Well, as you know, inflation is much lower in Japan than other parts of the world. So there's less of a case for uh, loosening monetary policy on that 
uh, regard. Um, so really what, what, what it comes down to is um, using fiscal policy in order to address the short term, what are actually believed to be the short term influences on, on inflation, um, which are coming from uh, external price pressures. Uh, via commodity prices in particular. Mm. But in, inflation may be lower than elsewhere, but it is still quite a considerable way above target now, the Bank of Japan's targets. Isn't the Bank of Japan just making now the same mistakes that the Fed and the ECB um, you know, made last year when inflation started to move above target, but they just did nothing because they thought it was transitory, and that turned out to be a horrible mistake. Isn't the Bank of Japan just doing the same thing? Yes, that's it's a good point. I think um, in other parts of the world, there is uh, evidence that there is a demand component to the inflation, even though it was driven by cost push, of course. In, in Japan, uh, by contrast to, to, for example, the US or the euro area, um, th- there's really a, a sense that it's not much in terms of uh, domestic demand. So it's really uh, cost push inflation driving uh, the inflation that we see at the moment. And of course, when cost push inflation is at play rather than something uh, driven by domestic demand, there's less of a likelihood that wage increases would would, would uh, materialize. And, mm. and this is something that is also a factor in keeping monetary policy uh, towards the loose end. Mm. So to get the right type of inflation that the Bank of Japan wants to see, um, you need to see wages rise, don't you? But but why aren't they? What are the obstacles to wages increasing? Well, th- there are a number of obstacles, um, and I think that the main one is the economic outlook. So what we see at the moment is a persistent negative output gap, and employers will be more driven to increase wages if the economic outlook is much more positive rather than uh, driven by factors related to the weakness of the yen and cost push inflation. Mm. If, if, so in other words, if the inflation was driven by domestic demand, then there would be more of a likelihood for wage increases to, to uh, pass through. Mm. But why don't um, Japanese employees do what we're seeing in the US, for example, which is that if they're being so underpaid, and a lot of data suggests they are underpaid compared to maybe global peers, why why don't they just move jobs? Well, labour mobility is something that has been a a problem um, historically in Japan. So essentially there was this idea that um, jobs would be for life, and this affected uh, productivity, and it also affected the the wage uh, setting process. I think that um, in recent years, things are turning around a little bit in that regard. There's a little bit more job mobility, Mm. um, and this is having an impact on how wages are being set. I think that um, towards the start of next year, there will be negotiations between labour unions and employers on setting wages. Um, and, you know, depending on how inflation materialises over the period, it will really dictate whether we can see um, a, a you know, transformation in, in the way wages are um, taking place in Japan and, and whether we will see um, some movements in, in that direction. Now, presumably, this is all having um, a positive impact in some areas because the yen is so cheap now that it's boosting tourism. You're nicking all our tourists from Hong Kong um, at the moment. I presume you're seeing quite a boom over there. Well, I think that certainly the the yen is 
lower and, and this is going to be a positive factor for tourism. But I think that, you know, we must remember that China still has a zero uh, COVID policy in place. And mm. until China really opens up, we would you know, not see the full effect of, of tourism gains. Um, also, the, the, the gains from tourism would take some time to materialize. And I think that, you know, even if we return to a level of tourism revenue that was seen pre-pandemic, um, this would only have um, maybe 5% impact on the, the level of, of the exchange rate. So I think, you know, mm. a lot of it will be down to uh, other parts of the export uh, sector to, um, to really uh, drive the economic growth going forward. And of course, okay. that is detrimentally affected by the external weak demand that we see at the moment. Thanks very much, John. We've run out of time. That's John Byrne, Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. In Japan right now, not a lot of movement in stocks. The Nikkei 225 is up 0.1%. The SX200 in uh, Australia is flat. The Cosby up around about 1%. Looks like a gain of about 30 points for the Hang Seng at the Open. Thank you for listening this morning. Do please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock for some more Money Talk. Coming up after the news is Back Chat with Jim Gould and Ada Wong. The weather forecast, strong northerly winds, gale force um, at times. Temperature's going to be around 24 degrees. Those winds um, are going to linger into tomorrow um, as well, and it will be cooler. Um, there is a strong wind signal number three in force right now and a red fire danger warning. It's 23 degrees, 49% relative humidity. <laughs> Rate 32. Here's Barry O'Rourke with the half-hour news. Ukraine's Prime Minister says energy infrastructure has borne the brunt of the latest wave of Russian missile and drone attacks. Denis Shmahal said seven of the ten regions hit had been suffering power cuts, affecting hundreds of towns. Some water supplies had been restored to the capital, Kiev, after power supplies were cut to pumping stations. But the mayor, Vitaly Klitschko, says about 40% of households remain without water. The Russian aggressors want to make the people without heating, without water, without electricity. In the winter, they want to freeze the whole population in our hometown. It's, it's genocide. Norway is putting its military on high alert in response to the war in Ukraine. This follows several spy scandals and the sabotage of the Nord Stream gas pipeline. The BBC's Sasha Slichter has more. With Europe cutting its dependency on Russian natural gas, Norway has emerged as its biggest supplier and a country of strategic significance. Norway has always kept a wary eye on its giant Russian neighbour. Today, the Prime Minister said the increased tensions made Norway more exposed to threats, intelligence operations and influence campaigns. He described the security situation as the most severe in decades. Norway's Chief of Defence said its new fleet of US-made submarine hunting patrol aircraft would be deployed at a faster pace than originally planned. U.S. federal authorities have charged a 42-year-old California man with attempting to kidnap the Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi. David DePape broke into her San Francisco home last week and attacked her husband, Paul Pelosi, with a hammer. From Los Angeles, here's the BBC's Sophie Long. Federal prosecutors have charged the man accused of breaking into the Pelosi's home and battering Paul Pelosi with a hammer with attempting to kidnap Nancy Pelosi and assaulting the relative of a federal official. The authorities say when the suspect broke into the couple's home, he shouted, where is Nancy, and was carrying a rope, a second hammer and zip ties. 
Such charges are normally dealt with by local authorities. Assault becomes a federal crime when there is intent to intimidate or interfere with the work of a federal official. David Dupape also faces a list of state charges, including attempted murder and assault with a deadly weapon. Back locally and the observatory says it expects the strong wind signal number three to stay in force until noon. It issued the signal a severe tropical storm Nalgay edged closer to Hong Kong yesterday. Kindergartens and classes for children with disabilities have been suspended. Finally, Brazil's president, Jair Bolsonaro, has yet to accept defeat in Sunday's presidential election. Several of his political allies have acknowledged the victory of the left-wing challenger, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. Mr Bolsonaro's silence has fueled concerns that he may contest the outcome. The electoral authorities have confirmed that Lula won by some two million votes. There'll be more news on the hour from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back.